In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Happy New Year. It is 2023, and on Notably Disney, there will be a lot of exciting content to come in the next 12 months, per always. And actually, very shortly, hard to believe, I'll soon be entering my fifth year of recording episodes. So the four-year anniversary is in just several weeks, and boy, have produced more than 100 episodes, many dozens of guests, and lots of really rich conversations, and the next two episodes are no exception. This is a two-part episode where I am welcoming back author, historian, Disney extraordinaire, Jim Fanning, to discuss with me a very fun topic, and that is favorite live-action film quotes. The Disney Library is extremely expansive, and is it easy to encapsulate the most wonderful, enchanting, poignant, funniest, uh, inspirational quotes uh, in 10 Films? No, absolutely not. But uh, we certainly have our favorites and our reasons behind why these quotes resonate with us. And that's what we're going to unpack over these two episodes. Jim and I are going to be sharing uh, 10 each. We'll be splitting those up across both of these episodes. And along the way, you're going to gather some backstory on the films, the people who wrote them, the performers who delivered these great lines and so much more. And I always love when I have the opportunity to talk with Jim, who lends such a sense of authenticity and palpable enthusiasm about the Disney projects that he has consumed and written about over the years. And I benefit from that space too. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, Again, five quotes from each of us in this part one, and then another five each in the second part, which will be the forthcoming episode of the podcast. So there you have it. 
Enjoy this conversation as we discuss favorite live action film quotes. Well, this is going to be another fun conversation here on Notably Disney. Uh, Many times in the past, I have welcomed on my next guest, author, historian, Disney aficionado, and fan of many other fun-related things, Jim Fanning. Uh, He has joined me as we have talked about many a Disney song in the past. Uh, However, on today's conversation, we're going to shift over to live-action film quotes, uh, because Disney has, of course, a very vast library of movies that have impacted our lives, uh, most in very positive ways. And uh, we, we thought it'd be an opportunity to highlight some of the notable lines that come from those films and what they mean to us and ultimately why they still stand up today as super memorable. So welcome back to Notably Disney, Jim. Thank you for having me, Brett. I think it's great to be talking to you again. I always enjoy it very much. Seems like we always have a lot to talk about with each other. (laughs) I have no doubt about that. And when we have so many different movie selections to explore, I know you have uh, much of the expertise when it comes to those Waltz era films. Uh, For me, I feel like uh, I'm probably more adept in talking about those from uh, the 90s and and 2000s, but nonetheless have an appreciation for the films that came before and those that have uh, debuted since. And I feel like, uh, you know, especially as we're approaching, you know, the Walt Disney Company's 100th anniversary, it's a time to really reflect on the legacy of work that has come out of the uh, company. And certainly its studio front has been very significant to that, uh, super prolific um, as it pertains to just number of brands and products and wonderful characters and experiences uh, and quotes fit into that uh, equation as well. Uh, before we get into it, Jim, I guess I'm wondering what what about uh, a Disney film, uh, live action film as we're talking about today, what about those movies stand out to you as, as it pertains to just the, the element of quotes and, and scripts and ultimately the language of of movies. I know that's a very abstract question, but uh, quotes often mean something to us in in different ways. And I'm wondering what what movie quotes mean to you. Well, it's interesting because um, we certainly have talked about songs and a song is something that you can take with you as, as the Sherman brothers said. And they said that Walt realized that. But another thing we can talk, we can take away with us is some memorable quote. And I think it's a part of the movie going experience that in talking about the movie, you say, oh, remember when they said that? That was so funny or that, that was so profound or whatever. So um, in a very simple sense, I think I think just the the, the characters are usually so strong. And the visuals are usually so strong in a Disney film. So the what the language that they use is is a reflection of those characters. So uh, I think it's just something to hold on to and something to remember it by and something to kind of turn it turn over in your your mind. And another thing about Disney films, I think more so than most, is that people do send do tend to see them over and over. So sometimes it even means seeing them with their own children if they saw them as a child. So 
it's something you can revisit perhaps more even more than other other classic type movies or any kind of movies what about you yeah well what you what you're saying there makes me think of the notion of i feel like particularly in this day and age we are just inundated with content with information um you know a large part of that is of course is you know the internet and social media and other ways of um you know consuming uh media television and film and whatever's in between with streaming where it's kind of hard i think to operationalize what is a with a series these days, but with movies, particularly theatrical ones, it's a it's a very much a shared experience, and it's one where so many people are familiar with certain movies that it allows for that uh, opportunity for um, connection well beyond the movie. Much like what you're saying with songs, and I think certain quotes, like if you have a group of friends or family and you all enjoy the same movie, you might find yourself quoting um, certain lines and random daily situations that have no connection to what's actually happening, but it recalls something. So for me, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to, to laugh and to reflect. I sure agree. So we did not necessarily come up with a set of criteria for this. Um, we kept it very open-ended, which I think is, is kind of good at times to be very fluid in that way. And, um, you know, I think we all may have different definitions of what is a Disney film, right? Especially since there's been acquisitions. Um, there could be different definitions of live action because there are some films that blend live action and animation. Um, there's a lot of different ways to make sense of a Disney live action film. So that's why I really welcome uh, seeing what contributions we have on this list. Um, in my mind, at least, the only rule I gave myself is do not use multiple quotes from the same film. So I wanted to highlight one, uh, at least, you know, 10 different films here. Um, and that was basically the only limit that I set for myself. Um, I knew I wanted to be mindful of covering different points in time and Disney history, but understandably, kind of like what you were alluding to earlier, Jim, in terms of um, watching films many times, I think what I recognize is all the films on my list are films that I have seen at the very least at least three times, um, probably many, many, many more times than that. Um, so consequently, there are certain movies that probably have great lines of dialogue, but they haven't stuck with me as much because perhaps I've only seen them once or twice or it's been a long time. So I think that recency effect um, played a role in terms of my selections, but that's kind of how I was processing how to compile a list where quotes would be um, across different points in time, different genres, um, and yeah, ultimately, uh, various flavors of, of Disney movies, but how about you? Yeah, it's really exactly the same with me. Um, I'm certainly seeing, uh, maybe I'll realize differently as I go back through the list, but most of these I've seen very, you know, lost count how many times I've seen them. <laughs> uh, of course it's part, you know, it's part of what I do. So, um, as a profession, so you know, sometimes you just end up seeing something so often because you're writing about it again or <laughs> or what have you. But um, I think that speaks to the classic nature of the film and also how much it appeals to us of all these films. Um, I lean toward the Walt and the Walsh, as I say. Uh, Bill Walsh was 
Walt Disney's greatest writer, I think, and um, and was so much more than that, in fact. But because of that, I think, and again, I put this list together, and I think I'm going to be surprised sometimes, like, oh, I chose that, I forgot. But um, I, I tended to actually avoid Bill Walsh films. There, there are there are a few, but um, because the whole thing could be what Bill Walsh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so um, it's it's falls more to the Walt era, but there's some definite departures from that, and I hope I hope some surprises too. So we'll see. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it makes me think: Do we want to? And, and maybe this just comes naturally to highlight the screenwriters who were involved. As we highlight the quotes, I'm perhaps not as adept in that department, but uh, you, you make a good point there that there could be that similar tone because of who's you know behind the scenes. Yeah, I, and and you know, it. I did sometimes like um, you see something quoted, like it'll say you know, like a line from Casablanca or something, and I'll have the quote, and then it'll say Humphrey Bogart, or it'll say Rick. And I'll say, well, yeah, but somebody wrote that for Humphrey Bogart. Somebody wrote it for the character of Rick. What about them? Because <laughs> they're actually the ones that came up with it. So I I wanted to kind of think of the the screenwriter behind it but in some cases and i just never had time to look some of this up the ones that i'm not exactly sure of so maybe what we can do is um put put the screenwriters names in the in the show notes and then then it'll be like also written down so people can refer to it if we if we don't if we don't just naturally come up with it Absolutely. And I can cheat and look at Wikipedia as we talk and, and we can have the dialogues uh, that stem from that because that is a, a nice a little mechanism to be able to elaborate on the folks' other work that they may have uh, written. So Yes, yes, absolutely. That's great. That's great. So, and speaking of that, maybe maybe I should say this while I'm thinking of it, and you can cut this out of if it, if it doesn't fit the, the flow or whatever. But as we're recording this, this is actually Walt Disney's birthday, December mm -hmm. 5th. So how cool is that to be talking about Disney with such a, Dis a Disney uh, expert and aficionado and all the things that you are, Brett. So it's, it's a great honor. Thank you. Well, so, says the person who has their name in many a Disney book. So <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I like the symbolism behind that. We'll be debuting this episode in the new year, but nonetheless, it is a celebration of Walt and it's a celebration of Disney 100. 100 years of wonder, if you haven't heard. There's a lot of wondrous things and hopefully we'll feel these quotes are. And um, if you'll allow me, Jim, to share the first quote, because I think it actually is very apropos given our subject matter. The way I arranged my selections is I'm actually going to share quotes reverse chronologically. So I'm going to share from the most recent film to the oldest film. And on my list, the most recent film is Saving Mr. Banks. And the quote is from Tom Hanks as Walt Disney. So <laughs> I, I clearly I did not necessarily plan it that way, but um, that's how it happened. So here's the quote that I'll, I'll recite. George Banks and all he stands for will be saved, maybe not in life, but in imagination because that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again, end quote. And, and that's, uh, of course, 
the scene when when Walt is trying to convince P.L. Travers to um, you know, essentially return back to helping, um, you know, uh, make Mary Poppins during this pivotal scene when she she feels like you know perhaps um, this isn't isn't quite right. There was obviously a very um, tense and uncertain relationship there, at least as the film depicts. And I think it's a really touching scene because uh, Walt flies out to, uh, I believe, London um, to to try to convince her. And it's at night. And this is also the same scene, if I remember correctly, where Walt is recalling his own childhood of um, kind of, uh, you know, delivering those newspapers under really hard conditions and just talking about this notion of of redemption and um, and trying to, you know, make make your father feel proud. Um, so I think it's a, just a really touching scene, and certainly there's some artistic touches that um, that are incorporated into you know the fictionalization of of real life events. But nonetheless, I, I think it's a great performance. I absolutely love Emma Thompson in the role. I think she should have gone an Oscar nomination. She got the Golden Globe nod, but um, nonetheless, uh, I think it's a fantastic scene and because it harkens back to, um, really this notion of George Banks as epitomizing who P.L. Travers' father was, there's just, there's so many nice connections that are embedded into the film and particularly in the scene in terms of the, the story that P.L. Travers is trying to, uh, relay through. Um, Mary Poppins and ultimately Disney's presentation of it via film. I, I just love the symbolism in that. And I feel like this quote uh, hits on that really saliently. Oh, beautiful. Well, what a great, what a great quote to start out with. And I can't add anything to that. I would merely be repeating everything you just said. And one of the, first of all, one of the most important things you pointed out is that it is a dramatization. It is a fictionalization. There are definitely things added and liberties taken um, and all the dialogues imagined, be, or not all of it, because they did have those recordings of the story meetings, but which is quite remarkable. But, um, you know, it, it had to be imagined because no one, you know, no one was there uh, for, for some, no one was witness to some of these things. So, um, People need, I think people need to keep in mind it's a, it's a dramatization, you pointed it out. So, but that line is beautifully written, beautifully delivered. And Tom Hanks is not doing an imitation of Walt Disney. So it's not really, to my mind, you know, it's an impression of Walt. Emma Thompson is, is not doing an impression of P.L. Travers. We don't have quite as much... <laughs> film of P.L. Travers as we do of Walt Disney. So it's not as easy to say that. But if you look at the film that exists or, or some of it, I'm sure I haven't seen it all, of P.L. Travers, she's not really, she doesn't really come across that way, but it doesn't matter. As you say, Emma Thompson is awesome. And I think P.L. Travers was very lucky to have her play her because that, of course, is going to be the image of P.L. Travers from now on. Nobody's going to very few people are going to seek out the actual footage of her. So what a, what a, and she's great. I, I think Emma Thompson can do no wrong. I, th I think she's great in everything that she does. <laughs> she's yeah. So it, it's probably one of my favorite 
performances in a live action Disney film in, in recent memory. Um, and interestingly, so a thread line here, so, and this is through me doing some digging as, as, uh, as I was sharing some thoughts. So Emma Thompson also was in Cruella, the live action 2021 film, which was written uh, or co-written by Kelly Marcel, one of the writers of Saving Mr. Banks. So um, uh, an interesting overlay there. And, and she delivers some great lines in that film too. Uh, but there you go. So uh, Saving Mr. Banks and uh, my quote is from Walt Disney. Well, awesome. Well, I'm going to choose my, I do have to say that my choices are quite eclectic. So they're just in terms of the types of quotes, I think they're all over the map. Some of them are profound, some of them are quite simple, but I think I'll start with one of Walt Disney's greatest films, which is Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And it's not necessarily the greatest quote from that movie, but it's when Dar it's from Darby O'Gill himself when he has captured the king of the leprechauns and the king realizes this now and he's trying to get away and he's he's threatening Darby you let me go or I'll have all these horrible things happen to you and Darby's just laughing and laughing because he knows the, he knows all the lore of the leprechauns so his his one of his responses is woo hoo hullabaloo <laughs> so that's my quote that's my first quote for this session talking with you Brett and the, the the quote I pick up from Darby O'Gill and speaking of things that we might say in real life I've I've been saying that for years <laughs> and I'm sure no one even knows what I'm talking about but it's really it's really fun because it's extremely Irish and it's extremely like it, it's just delightful and that he's like oh he's he's just saying you know say what you want just run, just keep running off at the mouth none of it matters i'm i i won i'm i'm the victor you're the loser so just keep doing your hullabaloo so <laughs> that's my first quote and that's just a, such a fun word dictionary.com says hullabaloo is a clamorous noise or disturbance or uproar <laughs> i knew the definition but of course i want to verify with a legitimate source you don't hear that every day but it's but it's apropos yeah you certainly don't hear it every day that is so true and i i think one reason i i, I chose that it's first off is because my uh, i'm irish myself so uh, i have i've always had an affinity for that movie just just in its i mean aside from the amazing special effects which of course everyone celebrates just the the grasp of the language and to hear those great Irish actors, you know, speak them and and the life they bring to them. Uh, and one one thing that occurs to me fairly fairly recently, it was probably actually more like ten years ago. But as these things go, um, I had occasion to see it with a group of twenty somethings who had never seen it, probably had never even heard of it. And I just couldn't wait for the for the movie to work its magic. And indeed it did, because by the end of the movie, they, it was absolute silence. They were so not enchanted by it, but taken in by it. So they they were the, the movie really. I mean, you don't get very many opportunities or I don't to see these things with an audience. 
and to these older films and to see it where you can get their reactions. But anyhow, one of the things that they said was, as it went along, they said, why are they so sarcastic? And why do they drink so much? Because there's, there's a lot of drinking in that film. <laughs> so again, with my own Irish heritage, I was able to say, because they're Irish. That's why. <laughs> so it it everything in the movie is just whatever they're doing it's it's just a delight and it, and it continues to work its magic which i'm very happy about awesome i i like the pick um so robert stevenson directed it and certainly i'm sure we will hear about some other selections from robert stevenson at some point the writer here uh i have listed as lawrence edward watkin um right. who wrote a number of films of, of that era Yes, he was he was really Walt Disney's favorite writer. And I believe he was brought on board to write Darby O'Gill. But that was like in the late 40s. And this the movie wasn't made until the late 50s. It had a very long production, or I should say development period, very long, in which Walt, uh, Lawrence Watkin went to Ireland several times, as did Walt Disney. And at one time it was going to be animated, at one time it was going to be live action and animated combined. But um, during that period, Walt kept giving him other assignments because he liked his writing so much. So they have they really had a wonderful relationship. And he, he, as you say, he did do a good number of Disney films and some really good ones too. So he was he was really very good. Well, I I, I like that pick. I now now I'll need to find random opportunities in my day to say that and, and <laughs> fool people that I'm Irish. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to be saying "woohoo, hello blue" during one of my rants and raves and during during our our discussion here. So you'll have every opportunity. <laughs> okay, now I just need to find that opportune moment. Uh, my next uh, pick is also quirky because I have to have some fun ones with, mixed with the serious ones. So when you think of quirky, who do you think of? And I'm holding up one of my Muppets, uh, Legos right now, uh, the Muppets. So I want to have at least one Muppet selection on my list. And uh, and this pick actually comes from a film that was released uh, after Disney's acquisition, formal acquisition of uh, the Muppets in 2004. So the 2011 film, The Muppets, which focuses on uh, this notion of, okay, the Muppets are, you know, kind of scattered. They're no longer the family community that they once was. And then you have Jason Siegel and Amy Adams and Walter trying to assemble them together um, to, yeah, it's, it's a, it's not the most original premise, but it's still very compelling. Um, I, I think it's, a funny film. There's some good music in it. Uh, and I want to share a quote from some of the quotes I'll feature here. You have to have both the preceding quote and the actual quote for it to make full sense. So I'm going to consider all of it. And it's because it's uh, among a couple of characters that play off of one another. And uh, the scene is uh, with Tex Richmond, who's played by Chris Cooper in a very uh, uncharacteristic role for him. Um, this very serious uh, 
like oil businessman. Um, and who, who is he working alongside Statler and Waldorf, the curmudgeon Muppets who are typically uh, in the balcony? And the line from Statler first is, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say you were reciting some sort of an important plot point, to which <laughs> Waldorf says, well, I hope so. Otherwise, I just bored the audience half to death. And Statler says, you mean half the audience is still alive? And then, oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. <laughs> ho. There you go. Statler and Waldorf are always quotable. So good for you for zeroing in on them. And always breaking the fourth wall at times. So I, I think that's what I just have fun with, like, because there's such a, there's always like a wink and a nod to the viewers with some of the Muppet films. And uh, this film, which was really a, um, a, a pet project of, of Jason Siegel, uh, who is uh, credited as one of the writers along with Nicholas Stoller, um, they, they work together on Forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, which is great comedy. I technically, I actually prefer, um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the five-year engagement uh, with Siegel and Emily Blunt. That came out a little bit after the Muppets, but it's a really great team. They have really sharp writing and it really presented itself with the Muppets, which has a lot of great lines. Uh, I could have selected a bunch of them. I just wanted to go with um, this dynamic duo of Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> Excellent choice. And yes, I, I think the Jason Siegel's one reason that the film does such a good job with the Muppets and sort of a new approach uh, is is that he he's uh, loved puppets all his life. Yeah, I think he, he I think he was or is a puppeteer in addition to his acting and everything else that he does. And he just loves, loves, loves the Muppets. So it is kind of a love thing. Uh, and and that's that's good to have, um, of course, the Muppets in such good hands. So it is it is quite the delight. No yeah. pun intended with the Muppets in good hands, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just hope they're they're continually uh, in people's hands so we get to see more products coming out of them. Yes, exactly. We do, and I'm so glad you included the Muppets. That that's excellent. Yeah, some people in my life would be. Uh, Frustrated that it did not do something from the Muppets Christmas Carol, but um, uh, well, I guess that might be a preview that it's not on my list. But one Muppets feature is the Muppets. <laughs> Jim, what is your next pick? Okay, well, I have to look here because I'm I'm jumping around in my what 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 could possibly follow Darby O'Gill. Well, I think I'm going to go with something very different, which is so dear to my heart. Uh, one of my favorite Walt Disney films, and one that one of Walt's as well. And there really is so much to quote from this. The characters are so rich, and um, there's so much going on with the different attitudes of the different characters. But of course, uh, Granny is uh, Granny Kincaid has her own way of looking at everything. She's quite stern, but she's very loving. And she bases her whole thing, she bases her whole approach, I should say, to everything on what she believes is right in the Lord and how she understands scripture and her own faith. So, I mean, for instance, she says things like, um, 
when uh, uh, little Jeremiah wants to keep the, the lamb and he's focusing more and more on what the lamb can do and blue ribbons and all this. She says, true love ain't a harmful thing. True love's a good thing. It's good for the spirit, but you don't love that lamb anymore. What you love is blue ribbons and cash awards. That's all you're thinking about. Things that are vain, things of this world. until you forget all about things of the spirit. So that's more her typical approach. So because of that, that's not the quote I chose. But I chose it from the wonderful scene where they have a dance in the cabin with Hiram, who's played by Burl Ives, and Granny's the wonderful Beulah Bondi, probably probably one, well, definitely one of the greatest character actresses there's ever been. She's just phenomenal at anything she does. So she's a great granny, but they're talking about dancing, and uh, he's Hiram's kind of like, well, you know, some people are too old. And she says, oh, you're, you mean me, I suppose. And he says, you ain't no spring chicken, Granny. And this is, this is the line I'm focusing on. She says, I'll live to dance on your grave. <laughs> that line never fails to crack me up. It's, that's why I had to set it up with her more typical, straightforward spiritual talk, because that's so out of character for her in a way. But it shows another side. And then indeed, they do have this wonderful dance to music from the Victrola. So it's wonderful to look at that. I know it make, definitely makes me think of Walt's quote about nostalgia. I hope we never lose sight of some of the things of the past. Well, here's something from the past. People just dancing in their living room to the Vic music from the Victrola, which was, you know, the latest. It was the Spotify of the, of the day, I guess you could say. <laughs> they just put on, put on whatever music they wanted and they danced to it. And then later, Hiram also says that's, that's right sassy talk for a granny woman. So I just love the rich character and the folksiness of it and the, and the way they speak that you may be, still be in, in certain parts of the country, but I think we've lost all that now. So um, it's, it's just wonderful to go back on. But, but I'll I don't know that I've ever said it to anybody, but I'll often think, I'll live to dance on your grave. <laughs> What what a comeback! <laughs> and right, and she's actually so much older. She—that's the funny thing. She's so much older than the her character is so much older than the Burl Ives character. He's quite a bit younger, so he's a young man. So <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, and and I just looked up. So Balula Bondi, she lived to be ninety-one. Um, so she had quite a quite a life, to say the least, and. Played a, a mom and grandma in, in many films as well. She had a long life of playing older women, grand, granny type characters for decades <laughs> until her age, her real age actually caught up. And I read one story because she was, she was on a couple episodes of the Waltons playing a, playing a, a, a you know, kind of a pioneer woman that lived out in the woods all by herself. And, um, she was, uh, I think for her second appearance, she was nominated for an Emmy and she actually won. And this was like in 70, you know, the mid seventies. And I think some people were like, well, my gosh, is she even alive to, to accept this award? And here she comes down the aisle. She was there and she was wearing this incredibly glamorous gown and looked like a million bucks. 
So, and then she, I think she lived for at least another 10 years. So <laughs> never, never count her out, even if she was playing somebody that, that, you know, seemed, seemed older and feeble and not, you know, behind the times and such. So uh, she, and she's just, everyone listening, anytime you get to see her in anything, you know, definitely take a look. That's great. I'm not, I'm not really as familiar with so Dear to My Heart, um, but I, it sounds like I should be. And the quote, I, I'm familiar with some of the songs like Lavender Blue, but um, right. yeah, I, uh, I should explore that. I, that's not on Disney Plus, is it? No, it's not. It's baffling. I, I, I just don't understand it. Hmm. But but it's available on DVD and and um, you can rent it uh, through various. I think you can rent it for from YouTube, for example, and you can definitely see it. But it's it's not on Disney Plus. You're right. Missed hmm. opportunity, but um, yeah, I I like the delivery and the kind of the counterintuitive nature of it, as you as you explained. Um, for my next pick, I. Uh, I am probably selecting a character who could not be any more different than the grandma that you described. Um, my pick comes from, again, I'm following this reverse chronological nature, so we're gradually going back in time, not too far back, though, uh, National Treasure from 2004. And I am going with a very, very quotable line that is not the most original and not said with any hint of irony. You have Nicolas Cage, who is uh, ben Gates, the intrepid explorer who wants to preserve American history. So what is he going to do? My quote, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> and, and, you, and it's a line that transcends the film. Uh, certainly one of my favorite illustrations of this is Andy Samberg playing Nicolas Cage on Saturday Night Live as Nicolas Cage and saying that and also saying it alongside Nicolas Cage. Um, <laughs> Uh, during one of those guest appearances, it, I think, symbolizes the uh, kind of wacky nature of the film, which is to engage in something that is so, uh, as I said, intrepid, so illegal, but also so fun to watch. And it's a film that I think holds up on multiple viewings. We're recording this at the beginning of December. In a few weeks, we're going to get the uh, National Treasure Edge of History series on Disney+, Plus, which, while... Uh, in many ways, a spinoff, so to speak, because you, you don't really have much of the original cast returning, um, but it's in that same spirit. And I, I love the line. And I think it's just said with, with such seriousness and in the signature Nicolas Cage, everything is important and everything is uh, daunting. But nonetheless, I have this confidence because I'm Nicolas Cage and I'm Benjamin Gates. So that's my pick. <laughs> what a great pick that i mean that line should be studied in film school to show you know aspiring screenwriters that they're they're you know if they want to state the premise of a film as simply and succinctly and fascinatingly as possible you need to look no further set your sights on on this and see if you can match it or even surpass it but i don't think you could <laughs> yeah and and uh, in terms of the um screenwriting team for this 
Uh, and I, I failed to mention so dear to my heart, there were a lot of different uh, screenwriters um, involved with, with that film. Um, so wanted, we'll give them credit um, in the show notes. But for National Treasure, uh, you have uh, Jim Koof, who uh, among his uh, prior Disney work included Operation Dumbo Drop and Snow Dogs. So I think he perhaps ascended by the time National Treasure came along, but it was also with uh, Cormac and Marianne Wibberley, um, or the Wibberleys, um, and their Disney credits also include the sequel, Book of Secrets, uh, The Shaggy Dog from 2006, and G-Force, which I did not have the pleasure of seeing, and I, based on the trailer, I don't really mind that I missed that but um <laughs> the writing in National Treasure is really strong so even if it's a little bit a uh, little bit corny yeah well that that the context of the film and the time of film it is it seems to call for that so it fits very well and certainly all the adventure and the non-stop you know twists twists the action adventure I'm sure that's the main thing for the screenwriters to come up with so they certainly succeeded in that. That they did, yes. There's always ways to focus on the positives, and there are a lot of positives with some of those quotes. Uh, so, Jim, your next pick, where are we going? Well, I think I need to come up with something equally as succinct and fabulous in terms of just stating the essence of a film. And I should also add parenthetically that I, unlike you, I am skipping around through the years. I am not going in any particular order at all in case anybody's wondering. So my next pick is from The Rocketeer. And that is, as more and more people are discovering, <laughs> is an adaptation of the comic book series by Dave Stevens and is sort of a semi-superhero type film about this pilot who finds this super rocket pack and pack in the, I guess the early 40s and kind of becomes a superhero of sorts. He wears a helmet and everything. So in the in the unfolding of the story, people are seeing this guy flying across the sky. <laughs> And he obviously has some kind of rocket that's propelling him. So they come to call him the Rocketeer and there's and there's reports on him and who is this and what's going on. So late in the film, he says to his girlfriend in the unfolding of the plot, he's kind of like, well, now I have to, he's saying to himself, now I have to reveal myself. I have to tell Jenny because, you know, she's in danger and her life's being threatened. And I just have to tell her, the secret's up and he and he so he says to her like with great anticipation i have to tell you at the at this point and then all of that was just paraphrase and speculation but now the actual his actual quote is i'm the rocketeer and her her answer is the rock who <laughs> i just love that it just it, it just seems it's very funny it's very about the characters, and it's also very real that you have something's going on with you, and you think it's the most important thing in the world, and then you're telling about you're going to tell someone, someone who's very important to you, that you're going to reveal the secret, and they have no idea what you're talking about. 
So I thought that was a great little thing for the film, kind of the film itself to do, to show that it wasn't taking itself too super seriously. <laughs> but um, that that just makes me laugh every time. And I and I do, it usually doesn't even fit anything, but I do I do say that all the time. Rock a who? So. I, I feel like that trend of other characters uh, trying to make sense of a superhero's name manifests in a bunch of Marvel movies as well. So Ant-Man, there's like, oh yeah, like everything else is taken or that that isn't the quite, quite the exact line. But the point is, is that like he kind of realizes that it's a little bit silly. So I, I feel like, and certainly there were examples prior to the Rocketeer, um, but we've seen obviously an influx of these heroic super heroic fit figures and in, in the past few decades and um yeah that is a, a fun line and i love the art direction of that film oh, too yeah. like I, I have some issues with with the the narrative but in terms yeah that it, visually it's a beautiful film yeah it does it does miss the mark a little bit yes especially given the source material <clears throat> and it's a little it's a little surprising some of the a little bit of misfires, but for for Rocketeer fans, don't worry. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Don't I'm not I'm not criticizing it. Don't come after me. <laughs> and you know, Jim, are you aware that there is a Rocketeer board game from Funko Games? No, that you mean like a like a recent? Mm -hmm. Oh no. Yeah, it debuted um, in the past year or two. Um, it's called uh, The Rocketeer Fate of the Future. It's a, like a strategy game. Um, so Funko Games has been responsible for a lot of board games I've enjoyed recently that are based on Disney theme park attractions like the Honda Mansion, Call of the Spirits, and others. So they have a Rocketeer game. So that might be a way of extending uh, your opportunity to say the Rock who Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm assuming that might have come out in conjunction with, although probably not a direct tie-in with that uh, Disney, was it a Disney Plus series, I think? Uh, Disney Junior, but yeah, there's no tie-in to that, but yeah, I guess there's renewed interest. Yeah, because if it wasn't for that series, I think Funko might have gone to Disney and said, hey, we'd like to license you know, a game that for, oh, for what property, for what character, the Rocketeer, Disney would have said the rock who Cause I well, unfortunately, I don't still don't think they know what they have with that. So <laughs> that's really exciting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I have, I don't own the game, but the art direction of it is beautiful. Much like the film, it's in that same spirit of, um, you know, that, uh, mysterious uh, 19, early 1940s vibe and yeah it's it's really nice to look at so oh fantastic I'll have to look for that and good for them for doing such a faithful uh, tie-in and a, and a beautiful one um, I have done a video on my YouTube uh, channel about some of my Rocketeer collection which is all stuff from the time the movie was out so maybe I'll have to add that for my next so I can show something that's been done so well uh, in, in the in contemporary times. So see if Disney won't make a sequel, the very least you can do is make a sequel to your rock original Rocketeer video. <laughs> I, I'm feeling the pressure. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we traveling? Oh, oh, OK. Actually, it's my turn. I'm like. I should ask myself which one I, I was thinking for like, oh, I did the Rocketeer, of course, because we're in the 
well, we're not in the 90s yet in my list, but um, uh, my next pick is uh, also pretty funny. And I am going, oh, also, I just want to say with the Rocketeer, um, the this, this screenwriters, uh, screenplay by Danny Dolson and Paul DeMeo. Um, and then the story was by the two of them, as well as William Deere. That's what I'm seeing here, but um, I can't say I'm familiar with any of them. Um, uh, just by name alone, but I'm sure some of their prior work might be familiar. Great. Uh, okay, so my next pick is from a remake of a movie that's been remade many times in the Disney, um, or I guess at least a few times in the Disney uh, universe, and that's Freaky Friday, um, the 2003 film. Uh, which I feel like has almost had a resurgence lately with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan having uh, more notable roles in, in various projects. Um, I mean, it's a fantastically funny film. It's smart. Uh, the screenplay here, I'll just mention it from the onset, uh, Heather Hatch or Hawk, I don't know how it's pronounced, um, where it looks like uh, other than handling the Legally Blonde musical, Freaky Friday is probably one of her more notable uh, projects. And then Leslie Dixon uh, helped write uh, some great films uh, and screenplays, including uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, Overboard, Hairspray, um, and others. So I guess we'll give them credit for a moment. The the We, we all probably know the premise of Freaky Friday, uh, mother and teenage daughter switch bodies. And my quote comes from right after each of them wakes up. And there's a lot of great lines in that initial scene where they're just making sense of their bodies and, and what's happened to them. And in a complete wonderful deadpan, you have Jamie Lee Curtis as Anna in Tessa's body saying, uh, and it's it's probably my favorite line in um, in a Disney comedy, at least, and I can't even impersonate it well enough, but it's, oh, I'm like the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> oh, Yes. <laughs> but but it, I, I'm not doing it justice. We, you can just Google. I mean, the clip is easily accessible on YouTube. Um, if you don't want to go back to the movie itself, um, her delivery, she's just so totally enveloped in her character and her teenage self of just feeling like uh, she's so old and so just out of sorts and this was a performance where Jamie Lee Curtis uh, obtained a Golden Globe nomination, and deservedly so, I shall add, uh, for it is a wonderful performance where she just immerses herself and has so much fun with it. So there you go. That's my quote. That's a great one. Jamie Lee Curtis is always good. And she really had a chance to have a lot of fun with that if the, by the nature of what's going on. <laughs> so what that's a that's a great one. I had forgotten about that quote, but the minute you said it, yes, I remember seeing it and it was wonderful. I don't usually like remakes, um, but that one is extremely well done. So uh, good for them for doing such a great job with with that with that basic story. Yeah, yeah. I also have to say, I'm not sure if you've ever seen, mind you, it's a different interpretation in many respects, the Freaky Friday musical um, that, uh, not not just the television film, but the stage production, I shall add, 
that had um, a lot of original music, which ultimately they carried into the, it was a Disney Channel film, as it turns out, um, maybe four or five years ago. Um, but the music from the stage version, which was carried into the uh, TV film, is actually really good. Um, and I thoroughly, I saw a stage production of it in San Diego about four years ago, and it was fantastic, even though it was not a super professional cast. Um, it's yeah. a it's a really nice adaptation that is different from the 2003 film. So I don't think I even knew about this, so I'll have to seek that out. That sounds great. Okay, I'll check in with you after I watch So Dear to My Heart. <laughs> we, have, we have some homework to do, Jim. <laughs> it's always fun. What's next for you? Well, I'll turn to something more profound, perhaps, and that is Johnny Tremaine, which is Walt Disney's adaptation of the book by Esther Forbes, which is, by as I always tell people, is a fantastic book. And it's, I guess, by its nature as a book, it has so much more detail than the film does. But she was an incredible historian and did so much research uh, that it's it's just a phenomenal impression of, of life at that time in Boston of the, of the Revolutionary War time. But um, there's a lot of quotable stuff in Johnny Tremaine, but one of the best is, as Walt Disney said, James Otis, not the most famous name from among the figures in the... Revolutionary War, but a great orator. And so he is kind of trying to sum up with the Sons of Liberty what the reason is for this war that seems to be coming and are they really going to fight and take on the British, which seems so impossible. So he's one thing he says is, for what do we fight? Tell me that. And several of the men have answers and Johnny, Johnny himself, the, the young teenager, I guess, blurts out because he's he's present at the meeting, I think as kind of a clerk. He he um blurts out the rights of Englishmen. And James Otis says, and this is the quote, ah, now we have a glimmer, and it is prophetic that it should shine brightest in the eyes of youth. Rights, yes, but why stop with Englishmen? Is the earth so small there can be room for only one people? Or can we here fight for men and women and children all over the world? For this we can have war, that there should be no more tyranny, that a few men cannot seize power over thousands. So how incredible that, that it was thought to put this in the film that even be, because the film leads up to the Revolutionary War, you know, the shot heard around the world, it, it doesn't really go into what happens after that. So even, even before the war actually begins, it's saying, yes, it's, it's, this, it's these colonies that are trying to break off from England because their rights of, as English men <laughs> have been trampled on. And denied. But here he's saying we need to look at the bigger picture. And men, women, and children all over the world, whoever they are. And that's kind of thrilling because that is the basis of our country, you know. And it's 
unfortunately, sometimes forgotten. And unfortunately, we do see tyranny. And unfortunately, we do see people that are trying to seize power over thousands and millions of other people. And in our, in our current time, we have to remember that this cannot be. We have to remember how it all began and what this is all about. Not rights for a few, but rights for everybody. Or all, all, all men, all people, meaning men, meaning people. So it's quite, that moment in the film is quite thrilling. And that is my quote from Johnny Tremaine. That quote recall, makes me recall one of your selections for when we were discussing uh, different live action Disney songs and um, and when we're just illustrating really great lyrics and you highlighted from Pete's Dragon, there's room here for everyone. This is in that same spirit, I see. And uh, yeah, I recall watching Johnny Tremaine growing up and thinking that was a sort of a really nice snapshot of American history from a from a child standpoint and watching it fictionalized. And um, yeah, I, I, I like your quote quite a lot. I'm glad. And and it's also interesting when you when you talk about children seeing it, the I'm, you know, I'm sure one reason Walt gravitated toward it, not just the history, which of course he loved, and the patriotism, which he loved, but he loved stories about young people. And it was sort of his one of his uh motivations at the time is that there was so much about juvenile delinquency. So and a lot of films about it and he thought he thought there were too many films about that so he liked making films about young people that weren't juvenile delinquents so here's here's Johnny Tremaine who is a fictional character Esther Forbes created him to show uh you know to trace his life through these amazing and real events that were swirling around him to kind of bring the reader into it. And so the film does the same thing. But in this scene, it's another reason I really love this quote because they bring Johnny into it. And Johnny is the impetus for it. It's not just the, the Sons of Liberty having this meeting and they're saying they're great things. It's it's Johnny's involvement and what a great way to bring him into it. And the, and the respect that James Otis shows him as, you know, he's this kid, but, he says, aha, how prophetic. So it's it's really it's really great screenwriting, I think, and great storytelling. Yeah, I I would concur with you um on that. And I was going to say, um had a thought and it escaped me, but uh, I do want to highlight so uh the 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 book was written by Esther Forbes. Um, and then the screenplay was by Tom Blackburn, who is uh, very uh, responsible for a lot of the Davy Crockett uh, material. So in, in that same era, oh, what I was going to say was I, I appreciate Walt's uh, desire to share stories of teenagers who weren't delinquents, but I also love Rebel Without a Clause, which was also from that same era. So, Well, that was certainly one of the great ones. Yeah. And I don't I, I I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I, I don't think that Walt was against all of them. I think he just thought there were too many because that was a big trend. And he was like, every movie you see, you're seeing, you know, kids acting badly. And he said, that's not all kids. And of course, Drebble Without a Cause, one of the 
one of the reasons it was made was to show that it wasn't that juvenile delinquents were not just poverty-stricken kids or kids in gangs and stuff. These were well-to-do kids with from well-to-do families. So they were trying to show another angle on it. So there it had that going for it. It's not, it's about juvenile delinquents, but not your typical <laughs> juvenile delinquents of the movies of the time. So there's that to be said for it, as well as just being a great film. I mean, you know. <laughs> a rebel without a cause you know that's up there <laughs> yeah but um i also wanted to mention uh, referring to something you said earlier brett that this movie was directed by robert stevenson and in fact it was his first walt disney film so that's that says something and of course he was british so <laughs> he brought he brought maybe something that a little extra that was needed for that <laughs> for that topic very nice uh my next pick has nothing to do with historical accuracy um or or even uh or even just related to a time in american history like the boston tea party in that era um but rather um well i'm gonna head to the seas so pirates of the caribbean the curse of the black pearl um and gosh there are too many great lines so i just went with one from uh captain barbosa in his uh non-human form i shall say uh, as a skeleton when he's talking to elizabeth swan who um, does not use her actual name at that point because she doesn't want to be clear that that she comes from a certain lineage so she goes by the last name turner which is will's last name and when he transforms into uh, his, uh, you know, skeletal state um, with his crew, uh, she, he says very notably, and because this was in the trailer as well, you best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is great. I also love, I also love the one pirate who says, hello, puppet, but <laughs> I, I'm going to go with, with that one. Um, <laughs> Johnny Depp, of course, has a, a plethora of great lines, but uh, in terms of something that's really snappy and quotable, uh, I feel like this captures the the very mystical and uh, super fun vibes of the first Pirates of the Caribbean theatrical uh, venture, so to speak. Yeah, the first and the best, and it's really Clearly. so. It really is. Uh, I, I mean, all the unfolding of it all is very surprising. You know, it has and it's twists and turns so uh it's it's beautifully done beautifully beautifully done so that's a great great quote yeah it's a fun one and of course Jeffrey Rush um was really expertly cast in that role uh at which he repri reprised in, in subsequent films uh let's see who the, the screenwriters were I know it was a pair of folks um it was, or a bunch of folks actually, Ted Elliott, Terry Ruscio, Stuart Beatty, and Jay Wolpert. Um, so uh, those, were, uh, well, the first two were the screenwriters and story by the, the latter two as well. Um, and um, and yet, yeah, Ted Elliott uh, was really, uh, he was the writer behind Aladdin. Yeah. And uh, Terry Ruscio was, was he involved with Aladdin as well? Yeah, screenplay. Yeah, yeah because he did it with uh, Clemens and Musker. So 
I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm looking stuff up because I would not remember all this off the top of my head, but clearly they had some good writing chops and a lot of uh, good humor that they practiced with in that animated production as well. <laughs> yep, great, great choice. Love it. Okay, thank you. Uh, what's next for you? Well, let's see what we've got next. Um, I think I might go for something that, again, like Johnny Tremaine, speaks to today, but in a completely different way, in a satirical, comedic way, because this is from The Love Bug from 1969, directed by Robert Stevenson. And here we have the first on my list, written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti, the, the dynamic duo, as you might say. <laughs> And they were very adept at doing these sort of satirical slapstick souffles, almost <laughs> like like the you know the absent mind professor is is of this ilk. Uh, and this is this is they really reached a great pinnacle, I think, with the love bug. It, uh, uh, just a fascinating story. I mean, I think Herbie has become so ubiquitous that we don't even stop to think about it anymore. Oh yeah, he has a mind of his own, of course. Let's go, let's move on. But <laughs> what about the start of it all? So the great character of Tennessee Steinmetz, sort of this hippie type played by Buddy Hackett <laughs> so wonderfully. Um He's he's sort of explaining what he thinks is happening with machines. And this is this is very early in the movie before too much has happened, but he's sensing all of this with with this car that seems to have a personality and of its own and a mind of its own. And he says, Jim, it's happening. He's talking to Dean Jones, who's the race car driver. He says, uh, Jim, it's happening right under our noses and we can't see it. We take machines and we stuff them with information until they're smarter than we are. Take a car. Most guys, spread, most guys spread more love and time and money on their car in a week than they do on their wife and kids in a year. Pretty soon, you know what? The machine starts to think it is somebody. Well, <laughs> what could be more pertinent for our current world than we're stuffing machines with information and they're smarter than we are you know our, our phones are spying on us and alexa is taking over our our life and <laughs> so that's really quite profound so later then so that's really my main quote from tennessee but later jim says um let's see he says, you don't understand what happens, do you? They make 10,000 cars. They make them exactly the same way. And one or two of them turn out to be something special. Nobody knows why. And Tennessee says, I know why. <laughs> so there are, that, there are so many great lines in that film. One of them is the, the hippie character. This is set in San Francisco of the, the 60s. There's a hippie character in the... <laughs> in the next car in the drive-in when Michelle Lee's trying to get out of Herbie and Herbie's not opening his doors and she's saying help help let me out I'm a prisoner and he says we all prisoners chicky baby we all locked in 
And for for those that don't know that, uh, this for those that don't know this, that hippie character is played by Dean Jones and and all this, you know, hair and facial hair and gla- and hippie glasses and so forth. So that's a neat little touch. But at any rate, that's this is the base. This is the underpinnings of the love bug that machines are taking on a life of their own, and I think that's quite apt for our our world today yeah premonitions to be sure dean jones is one of those disney fixtures who i could never get tired of watching because he was just he leaned so much into those characters and um it's funny like i my most recent engagement with dean jones so to speak as if he were still living but the the most recent uh time that i consumed his content was the other day i was driving and i absolutely love my favorite stage musical is Company by Stephen Sondheim. And of course, he originated the role of Bobby in that. So I was listening to him the other day driving to work. Um, But yeah, there always is some Dean Jones goodness to be uh, had. And, uh, and the love bug, you know, even though, uh, you know, it spawned all the sequels and different incarnations, it has a presence um, in the parks and resorts via the all-star movies resort. There's the love bug section so for people who want their share of herbie um that's a a good way to to get it because uh yeah otherwise herbie doesn't have a presence in the parks he used to make an appearance with um lights motor action at um hollywood studios when that uh show existed but yeah not as much herbie uh mania anymore unfortunately unfortunately is right but you can still you can still see the love bug it's the first and the best and it's the one written by Bill Walsh and Don Negrati, so you know it's good. Exactly. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't quite call Herbie fully loaded at the same level. But. <laughs> so there you have it. Those are our ten quotes from the two of us, five each, and there will be another set of ten in the second part. In my picks, obviously, you heard that I covered more recent Disney releases over the past couple of decades. Jim uh, really runs all across the board and in the second part you will uh, go further back in time with me and then Jim is going to be delivering um, some other quite memorable and just uh, enjoyable quotes to, to listen to and unpack and figure out why do they really deliver the essence of what that movie represents or at the very least a scene or the dynamic among characters so i invite you to return back to the podcast for that conversation thanks again for joining me on another episode of notably disney i invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review follow me on twitter at bnachman reports that's b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.